Welcome to the Soundbar, the podcast that talks about anything and everything that can inform, transform, and inspire. It is a place where people can sit at the Soundbar and talk about ideas worth sharing and spreading and can voice their opinions on matters deemed important in society. With your host, Dr. Jasper Talarba, U.S. Fulbright Scholar and CEO of Apex Global Partners, and Sharon Jackson, Clinical Informatics Specialist. And now, here's Jasper and Sharon. near and far. This is your host, Sharon Jackson, or you can call me Sha. Indeed, Sha, we are live, and I am really excited, uh, just like you. This is our inaugural podcast, and my name again is Jasper Tolarba, but you can simply call me uh, Jas. And we are, we are the, the Soundbar podcast. podcast. And since we are here, this is who we are. We are here on a mission to inform, transform, and inspire you. Our why is to create a platform where people, you, our listeners, can freely voice your ideas and opinions on anything and everything that matters to you and to society. Correct. And we also aim to bring awareness to the way our institutions function in today's climate, as well as bringing to the spotlight inspiring stories of common people who are making a difference in their communities. Indeed, and our vision is to challenge common thinking, perceived notions, and the normal constructs of society. We seek to empower the very foundation of society, and that is you, to start thinking outside the box and be the soundbar. So to those with ideas worth sharing and spreading, join us and be heard. And since this is a big day, we have a very special guest. Indeed, that is correct, Chas. And so today, ladies and gentlemen, we are bringing to you Dr. Josefino Comiso. He is an American scientist. He was a leading physical scientist at the Goddard Space Flight Center and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, simply known as NASA. So Dr. Comiso was born actually in Narvacan, Philippines, and he came to the United States in 1964. He received a bachelor of science degree in physics from the University of the Philippines in 1962 and then four years later he earned his master's of science degree in physics from Florida State University. Also in 1972, uh, Dr. Josefino Comiso was given a doctor of philosophy degree in physics from the University of California at Los Angeles. Wow, those are big educational accomplishments, Sharon. So I just would like to add that Dr. Comiso began his career as a scientist at the Philippine Atomic Research Center in 1962. And then a year later, he took a position as an instructor at UP Diliman, where he worked until 1964. And then in 1972, he became an assistant research physicist at the UCLA. Then a year later, he was appointed a research associate at the University of Virginia. Uh, Dr. Comiso worked as a senior member of technical staff at Computer Sciences Corporation from 77 to 1979. And then from there, he became a leading uh, physical scientist at 
uh, Goddard Space Flight in NASA. And in addition, Dr. Josefino uh, was a visiting assistant, uh, sorry, a visiting scientist and professor at the University of the Philippines, uh, University of Tasmania, at uh, Shiba University, Marcus uh, University, Mariano Marcus University, rather, and the Hadley Meteorolo Meteorological Institute. Wow, that's a lot right there, Jasper. And to add to that, this research has been cited in one episode of the NBC Nightly News, actually, that was hosted by Brian Williams on Global Warming. And he co-authored the IPCC report in 2007, along with a few hundred other authors, which won, take note, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 together with Al Gore. And we are really fortunate to have with us today our distinguished guest, Dr. Josefina Camisa. Thank you. I know a lot of our listeners today are very interested in knowing as to how you started out in your career in the United States. Would you mind giving us a bird's eye view of how it all started for you? Okay. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank both uh, you, Sharon, and Jasper for the opportunity to participate in this uh, inaugural podcast episode. And uh, greetings to all, including those listening in the Philippines. I came to the U.S. in 1964, and it was because uh, while working as an instructor in physics at the University of the Philippines, I was admitted for graduate studies at Florida State University and was offered teaching assistantship that included uh, free transportation and tuition. The teaching assistantship provided a monthly allowance that I used to pay for housing and other needs, but I had to do some service with the department in the form of teaching undergraduate lab courses and or grading homework assignments. After receiving my Master's of Science degree in Physics at Florida State University, I then went to UCLA under a similar arrangement to earn my PhD in Physics. I was then offered uh, a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Virginia and did research in nuclear and particle physics at the Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory, the Los Alamos National Laboratory, and the NASA Synchrocyclotron Facility before I joined Goddard Space Flight Center to research climate change. That is very, very interesting. So how did you get into the climate change realm then at NASA? Well, actually, I joined NASA primarily because uh, I got interested in their program. Uh, that is a program on climate change. And uh, it was a good time to join because uh, they have a newly proposed project called the Mission to Planet Earth. It was a multi-billion dollar program and they justified it by saying we have had missions to Mars, to Venus, to Jupiter and Saturn, but not a mission dedicated to planet Earth. 
which is likely the only entity in the universe with intelligent life. So it was approved by Congress and I had to celebrate because I had a proposal associated with this program that was also funded and I became part of the mission. I was with a group at NASA that was dedicated to doing research in the polar regions because these regions are expected to be very early signals so climate change are likely to be found. This is primarily because the regions are covered mainly by snow and ice and there, there's uh, what they call ice albedo feedback that uh, facilitate the rapid changes. Wow, those are really interesting uh, journey that you had, Dr. Kimiso. Um, so you mentioned something about, you know, the, the ice and, and the global warming as part of your research. Um, what was the main focus of your research aside from those that you already mentioned? When I joined NASA, it was the first time that uh, uh, we have satellite data that uh, looks at the entire Antarctic region as well as the Arctic region. So for the first time people see uh, the coverage of uh, how, how the, these polar regions are covered by ice. And uh, we were able to quantify the seasonal changes like in the Arctic the ice cover is uh, about 8 million square kilometers in the summer and it grows up to 60 million square kilometers in the winter and for the Antarctic it goes from around 4 million square kilometers in the summer to about 20 million square kilometers in the winter. So these are information that nobody knew before. At the same time we saw a lot of features in the ice pack and in, in the middle of the ice, uh, what I'm talking about is actually sea ice and sea ice is uh, the frozen part of the ocean. It gets so cold in the Arctic and the Antarctic, sometimes as low as uh, minus uh, 30 degrees over the ocean. So you have a large part of the polar oceans being frozen. But we observed that in the middle of the ice pack in the Antarctic, there was a an area which is called Polinia. It's like a lake, but uh, it's surrounded by sea ice and it's not frozen. So that has, that puzzled a lot of scientists when uh, we start showing these maps. And in fact, some, there were some hypotheses that it might be the place where the UFOs are hiding. <laughs> so it gets uh, so warm because of the UFO activities that it then caused the uh, melting of the ice on top of it. We have our own uh, uh, interpretation as scientists but until now, they have not been validated because uh, after it occurred uh, continuously for four years, uh, 
it started uh, disappearing and until now it hasn't uh, reappeared again. We also discovered that uh, the ice uh, form, I mean, around Antarctica, for example, you have coastal polinias, that is uh, open water near the shores of uh, the continent of Antarctica. And uh, they're actually the primary source of uh, the production of sea ice. And at the same time, they form uh, ice continuously and therefore they produce uh, very cold and very dense water that then sink to the bottom. And this bottom water is actually part of the water that goes around the world, which we call thermohaline circulation. We also discovered some uh, areas around the Arctic that are very strange. Uh, strengths like uh, you would have a tongue of ice that protrudes from the sea ice cover and it turned out that they're just like polinias where uh, you, you, you grew the ice in these areas and produce uh, uh, bottom water as well but the strange thing is that uh, the area for example near Greenland is one of only four areas in the world where deep ocean convection is going on. Really good stuff, uh, Dr. Peniso. Um, you're really at the forefront of the NASA research on um, this uh, subject matter. Um, let me ask Dr. Peniso, how much is the planet warming up? Is it too high or what is the acceptable number? Well, since the Industrial Revolution, the planet has warmed up by almost one degree. That's uh, more than uh, one century. And uh, the trend is associated with uh, what we think is increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And uh, on top of that, there are also all these other greenhouse gases that cause uh, warming as well. So, uh, if this continues on, I mean the warming, then at the end of this century, which is uh, the year 2100, it could warm up by as much as uh, 4 degrees centigrade. Don't do anything to suppress the emission of uh, fossil fuel, which is the source of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Um, that is a very alarming. So, yeah, that is indeed uh, very alarming, Jess. So, what is the overall global goal when it comes to controlling greenhouse gases? Yeah, I was actually. Uh, one of the authors of uh, some of this IPCC report. IPCC means uh, Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. This report has been sponsored by the United Nations and it's regarded as uh, the most authoritative report on climate change. 
So, I was an author in the IPCC uh, 2007 report. It was actually the report that won half the prize, half the Nobel Peace Prize, where wow. Al Gore was also the, uh, awarded the other half. So, I was at the same time uh, asked to be uh, a lead author for the succeeding IPCC report, which was published in 2014. So, I can tell you more about uh, what we came up with that uh, IPCC report in 2014. We use uh, a, a model that is agreed upon by scientists all over the world. It's called CMIPS-5, and we use that to uh, establish what would be the consequences of different levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And uh, the sensitivity study starts with uh, what we call uh, our RPS. Uh, 2.6 uh, rep uh, representative concentration pathway. Uh, so it's RCP 2.6, which assumes that uh, uh, we keep the greenhouse gas in the atmosphere constant as it is. So it would mean that. Uh, we don't increase that percentage of atmospheric uh, greenhouse gas uh, from 421 parts per million. And uh, the consequence of that would be to stabilize the temperature. And uh, the projection is that the temperature would stay almost the same as it is now. So the other option is uh, not doing anything. That means you allow the greenhouse gas to go up uh, the same way it has uh, gone up in the last uh, uh, 100 years. And uh, by the time you get to the year 2100, the temperature could increase to as much as uh, uh, 4 degrees centigrade. So 4 degrees centigrade is actually very high. And uh, the meetings of uh, governments around the world have come to the conclusions that we should keep the temperature uh, as low as uh, temperature increased not more than 1.5 degrees centigrade. So that's uh, what the target is and that's the reason why uh, there's uh, this COP21, uh, there's this uh, meeting in uh, Paris where they agreed uh, under uh, COP21 to 
limit the increase in temperature to just 1.5 from the start of the industrial revolution. So it has gone up already by almost 1 degree. So going up to 1.5 is just uh, maybe a foreseeable future if we don't do anything with uh, greenhouse gases. So uh, where are the countries on their stand on, on the matter? Like the United States, for example, or China, the number one producer of uh, this greenhouse gas. Yeah, that's actually the big problem right now. Because uh, U- U.S. and Europe used to be the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide. And the initial uh, conferences parties was targeting the U.S. and the Europeans to limit their emission. But over the last uh, 10 years, China has cut up very fast. And in fact, they cut up with the U.S. about uh, uh, five to seven years ago. And right now, uh, they're emitting uh, twice as much carbon dioxide to the atmosphere as the U.S. So if the agreements are just to curtail the emission from Europe and and, uh, and uh, U.S., also other countries like Japan, then it won't work because uh, now the major emitter of uh, carbon dioxide is actually China. And uh, on top of that, we have India with a population almost the same as China. And their emission is also increasing rapidly. So that's the key problem. We cannot solve it alone in the US, for example. It has to uh, involve countries like China, India, and other fast developing countries like Brazil and even Indonesia participate fully to propelling the emission of carbon dioxide. I agree. It's definitely a, a, an agreement amongst these countries, like what you said, Dr. Kuniso, especially those developing ones, because they sometimes have the high technology uh, coming up and then also with the number of population. Uh, that they have in those countries. Now let me shift a little bit into a uh, more of like a layman's uh, questions and and I personally struggled understanding this but I think it's important for our listeners to understand the difference between climate change and global warming because sometimes we get mixed up with those two. Yeah, there's actually a big difference. We can go back to Mark Twain when he said uh, climate is what we expect while weather is what we get. Very true. So weather is actually what's going on like in terms of temperature, precipitation, winds and other uh, parameters while climate is the average of weather over uh, a relatively long time 
over a certain area. It's a very uh, good, uh, you know, explanation as to the difference between those two. Um, another question that always comes up is that if global warming is real, Dr. Kumiso, why is it so cold and snowy this winter? Well, I have to tell you that uh, winter is always colder than summer. There is a seasonal cycle. As you know, you know we go from summer to autumn to winter and then spring. And this is associated with the fact that uh, the earth rotates around the sun for a year. And the axis of uh, the, the earth is not perpendicular to that of the plane of the orbit. So it is inclined by about 22 to 24 degrees. And because of that, some part, uh, some time of the year, the sun sees uh, the whole uh, polar region, like the Arctic or the Antarctic. And at that time, it heats up the, the entire region. So it's not only warmer, like in the summer. And in the winter, it's the opposite. Much of the polar region is in darkness. So if it's in darkness, then it gets very cold. And that's the reason why in winter, we get the, a, a weather that's much colder than that in the summer. What does production and consumption of meat and dairy products have to do with climate change? Well, animals that produces the meat and dairy products are like humans they are most comfortable within a certain range of air temperatures because they have similar physiology. So when it gets too hot, they will not be as productive as during acceptable temperatures. And they might even die like humans during heat waves. So the supply of meat and dairy products could be significantly reduced because of climate change. So, yeah, so that's, we really have to consider our own individual responsibility when it comes to helping in the reduction of the greenhouse gases because eventually it will all affect us, especially with these uh, things that we consume on a daily, regular basis. Yeah, so that's one thing. So, in, in my own personal case, I, we moved from the D.C. area to the southern part of Virginia because my husband said DC will one of these days uh, get flooded. How true is that, Dr. Comiso? Well, the He's flood... thinking ahead. <laughs> He's thinking ahead. Flooding is normally caused by a number of reasons. You can have persistent rain uh, in, in an area, and so you have a lot of rain than normal. And, uh, uh, the system is not able to absorb all the trend, so just stay uh, on the ground. Or you can have a big storm, like what happened in, during in 2012. There was this hurricane Sandy that 
flooded New York and that and destroyed uh, the Atlantic uh, area. Uh, but <clears throat> these are localized, you know, and, and if you're thinking about uh, real uh, flooding all over the place, you have to think about the sea level. So we have been studying how the sea level has been going up and a uh, long time ago it was just uh, less than one millimeter per year. It went up to about uh, two millimeters per year and in the last uh, 20 years it went up to around three millimeters per year. So these are minute changes in sea level rise and it will take a long time to get sea level to go up by several meters. But we have uh, two big ice sheets in the world, one the Greenland ice sheet and the other one is Antarctica. So Greenland has uh, a sea level equivalence of around 7 meters and Antarctica around 65 meters. So you combine that together, you can have the potential of sea level going up by more than 72 meters. So if that happens, then most of the coast, uh, coastal cities around the world will be, I mean, all the coastal cities around the world will be flooded. And that would be a large percentage of the world's population. But... will be displaced. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you but seen some photos of Italy in places, you know? where their city is almost underwater, right? All right, yeah. So the other thing is that uh, we observe uh, 3 millimeters per year globally, but the special distribution of the sea level rise is not uniform. It's actually almost zero near San Francisco, but near uh, the Philippines in the Western Pacific, it's nine times global average and uh, this is because of uh, weather circulation the winds doesn't blow the same way in different areas of the world and also uh, temperature of the ocean is not uniform throughout the world so if it continues to go up as it is and it gets accelerated then uh, Manila one of the most vulnerable area. Oh my. Um, so, is Manila the only place that will be kind of prone no. to possibility? There are many other places, as I said, the Western Pacific. So, that would include uh, Indonesia, that includes uh, Taiwan, China, Japan. So, speaking of specifically of the Philippines, Dr. Comiso, what other islands in, in the Philippines will be affected? Well, if you're thinking of uh, 
because several meters, then practically all islands will be affected. So I guess the question of Sharon, just in the lighter now, uh, before this, you know, in a, in a contest, it was asked like, how many islands are in the Philippines, right? And somebody, you know, <laughs> came back. Yes. With, Is it low tide or high tide? So I guess the next question is gonna be. Like, how many islands in the Philippines? Which era? <laughs> what year are we talking about? Because <laughs> right now we have 7,100 islands, so right. who knows what's going to be in the future, I guess. Wow, that's interesting. In line with that, will uh, New York as well be underwater? Because Jasper is living near New York, Dr. Comiso. <laughs> yeah. Well... <clears throat> It depends on, uh, you know, right now it's, it's not underwater because the sea level is rising very slowly. But if it gets accelerated, and it can be accelerated uh, due to the melt of Greenland and West Antarctica, these are two areas that are currently considered uh, unstable. So, if, if uh, warming occurs in Greenland to the point where it becomes unstable, you introduce uh, seven meters of uh, sea level into the oceans, and of course, New York will be uh, underwater. Yep, that is actually kind of alarming too. Um, so. How do we know if global warming is real and that we humans are causing it? Because I know there are skeptics out there, Dr. Camiso, and you know, they're out there, you see them uh, speaking up. How, what can we say to them, to these skeptics, to convince them that global warming is indeed real? Yeah, as indicated letter, well, uh, earlier, I'm one of the authors of the IPCC report. And in this report, uh, we conclude in, in both 2007 and 2014 that uh, uh, global warming as caused by humans is real, you know, and is unequivocal. So the physics of greenhouse gas warming is actually well established. Nobel Prize winning scientist uh, Van Ter Hemius had predicted in 1900 that the doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere would cause an increase of 4 degrees centigrade in global temperature. And more advanced physical models that make use of uh, supercomputing and comprehensive satellite data have come out with similar estimates. So, we know that there are greenhouses during the winter, and in these uh, greenhouse gases, they're able to raise agricultural products because they are normally warmer and more manageable than uh, outside the greenhouse gases. And we know that the surface of Venus is a lot warmer than that of the Earth because Venus has a lot more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. What other actions do you think can we do to forestall the 
direct impacts of climate change. So, as indicated earlier, there are these uh, uh, RCP uh, pathways, and uh, if, if we can keep the, temp, uh, the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere constant and the same as it is now, then we would stabilize the temperature. And uh, that's the reason why COP21 and COP26 are requiring that uh, we keep the temperature uh, increase from the industrial revolution not to be any greater than 1.5 degrees. So, uh, however, I think I've read somewhere that the U.S. has increased in its emission actually uh, last year. So, I guess we still have a lot of things to do here. I mean, politically, uh, things has to be to, to change from that level for for this goal to be really more of a realistic thing to be achieved. Well, Sharon, if you're talking about politically, I think you're talking about, you know, years, if not decades of action to be taken. So let's not even go there yet. Let's talk about individually. Which, which now brings me which brings Ever me to the well, next right? question. Exactly. Actually, let, let me interrupt uh, because uh, at the start of COVID, a lot of countries have shut down and you could hardly see uh, automobiles or cars in the road and uh, the use of energy is minimized and that made a lot of difference and in fact uh, they found out that uh, there was 25% less emission from China and in, in India the the brown cloud has diminished. So there's impact of reducing the emission of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And that was obviously demonstrated during the start of the COVID lockdowns. That is a very interesting point to make, Dr. Camiso. So after all, the pandemic had brought something positive, uh, not to individual people, but person, but globally, as a community of international, you know, citizens, we have seen, like what you said, an, an increase in by twenty five percent in that. So that's a good thing, right, Sharon? That is absolutely correct. Yes, and yes, and to to Dr. Comis's point, yes, we did see clear response from different countries during the height of the COVID lockdown could see the significant change if we use less of those things that we use on a daily regular basis. So on another note, Dr. Kumisa, we know that you are doing some a remote sensing project in the Philippines. So I'm, we're kind of interested since we have a lot of fellow Filipinos who are into the farming industry so i think this will be a very beneficial 
topic for them to know. So can you tell us more about that project? Yeah. We are effective at NASA. We have to satellite uh, analyze uh, a lot of satellite data. And that was part of my expertise to what they call remote sensing. So there are a lot of applications of satellite remote sensing that the governments in the world can take advantage of. And that's the reason why many countries around the world have been launching their own satellites. And the Philippines, for example, have started launching their own satellite as well, uh, just in the last uh, two to three years. So the Department of Science and Technology in the Philippines has started the Balik Scientist Program several years ago, but it was dormant for a few years until they revived it in 2008. The goal is to attract uh, highly achieving scientists and engineers with Filipino background to go back to the country and share their area of expertise. Similar programs were successfully implemented in Korea and Taiwan. So you know that those countries are not very progressive. So since uh, 2008, I have participated almost every year in this program and went back to the country to give lectures on climate and environmental changes as observed from satellite data. I also tutored students and faculty members on how to use satellite data to monitor forestry, crops, and coastal regions. I would normally work with them is a professor at the university in the Philippines and do joint research and applications of satellite data, including doing field validation to make sure that our interpretation of satellite data in the Philippine setting is correct. Such ventures have been very successful since it led to the publication of uh, several journal articles that reports what's going on in the Philippines in terms of natural resources and other things. It led to thesis projects of students. They were able to get their master's degrees. And then we wrote a book on uh, Philippine climate change that was selected as the outstanding book of the year when it was published in 2014. We are also writing uh, with professors in Philippines, a book on Laguna de Bay, which is currently very polluted, and the book is uh, Wow, those are great feats and accomplishments, Dr. Camisa. Uh, kudos to you and, and your dedication to give back to the country, uh, specifically the Philippines. And uh, I'm sure, you know, you are giving a lot of information and um, you know, knowledge to all the uh, students, graduate students uh, in the Philippines so that they can continue with their own scientific endeavors and scholarly projects. Um, in terms of the remote sensing, Dr. Camiso, um, how would it be instituted to ensure positive impact on the farmers and its sustainability in the country? Well, satellite data orbits continuously around the Earth. 
So it provides uh, continuous monitoring of the entire country and uh, almost daily early information on surface temperature, precipitation, health of vegetation, soil moisture, as well as occurrences and extent of drought, fire, and flooding. So all these parameters affect uh, crops and their useful information needed to boost uh, agricultural yield. They also provide the location of areas that are high in productivity and data can be used to assess the best time to start the planting season in different agricultural regions of the country. In addition, satellite data are useful for many other applications, including monitoring the forest that enables detection of the illegal logging, plantum concentration in the open ocean that provides information about the areas where schools of bees are likely to be found, and identifying lakes, river, and coastal areas that are heavily polluted. You know, this will have a great impact on the agriculture in the Philippines. So, how will the Philippine government be able to kind of support you in this way, or are they already supporting you? in terms of uh, ensuring that once the project is done, that this will be implemented nationwide? Well, the best way to do this would be to have a facility where satellite data are processed, such that information useful for farmers can be extracted. Then such information can be provided directly to the farmers who also need to be educated and how to use the data. We now have uh, a Philippine Space Agency that functions in a similar way as NASA. It's new and uh, they're currently underfunded. But they can provide this kind of services if the government provides them the funding that they need. Well, I'm sure after listening to this podcast, Dr. Camiso, our government stakeholders will be motivated to uh, support this project and also those uh, students and researchers and scientists uh, like you and also in the, our counterparts in the Philippines, your counterparts in the Philippines, to make sure that this project actually becomes um, sustainable. What do you think, Sharon? Yes, yes, definitely. I totally, totally agree. And I, I'm so happy to hear that this project is out there and that it is ongoing. And uh, hopefully we'll get to see this come to fruition for the benefit of all our countrymen. Yeah. As we know, the Philippines is one of the biggest producer of rice in the world. So definitely this will boost our economy. Yes, certainly. I would encourage the government to uh, put more funding for the Philippine Space Agency. So NASA has around uh, $20 billion budget and uh, they allocated uh, the Philippines about uh, 1 billion pesos this year. But they could not even give that 1 billion. Uh, pesos, you know, they 
we're just uh, giving them uh, maybe 10% of that this year. So there's not much that can be done unless the government helps, you know, and uh, get more interested in space technology. Absolutely. Absolutely. It takes a lot of, you know, uh, willpower and commitment, uh, not just from our scholars and scientists, but also from the government uh, that needs to fund all these projects to make sure that all the uh, capital investments are in place. It's the political will, Jasper. I'm not political will. Go there, Shan. <laughs> so I guess I just would like to, in closing, I think I would like to really um, uh, give my kudos and, and my admiration and, and my salute to Dr. Komisa for doing amazingly in his career as a scientist and researcher. So I really would like to applaud him for doing such an amazing job in his career. He did our country proud in the Philippines, being a NASA uh, scientist, outstanding scientist. That is it's, uh, a well applauded feat uh, for him. With that note, Sharon, I think our listeners could also ask questions uh, through comments down below in our uh, podcast if they have questions and we can certainly um, ask technical questions to Dr. Kamiso and you can follow up with uh, those individuals uh, who have questions and we can certainly connect them uh, to Dr. Kamiso for any further questions. Definitely, that is absolutely correct, Jasper. And just to piggyback on what Jasper said, yes, we are doubly proud of everything that Dr. Kamiso has done for our country. We cannot... We cannot really kind of fathom what you have already done and is continually doing still. We know that you have already retired, but has, has not stopped doing good things for the benefit of, of the entire human race, I must say. So yes, as what Jasper has said, you can freely type in your comments and questions and we will try to make sure that we get back to you with answers and Please do remember to like and subscribe our channel and uh, would like to enjoin you as well to leave us any comments or suggestions for any topic that you would like us to discuss further. And so this has been a great inaugural episode for us and I hope that it is as well for you all. All right. So thank you so much, everyone. Uh, Have a great day and we'll see you again next episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Soundbar Podcast with your host, Jasper and Sharon. This podcast is made possible by Nicole Talarba for the great cover art, Roger, the bearded host, Muxipo, for the excellent voiceover, music by Sebastian Marchand, and of course, our excellent guests. If you found value in this show, please give us a thumbs up and subscribe to our podcast on Spotify and tell a friend about the show. If you have ideas worth sharing and spreading, please let us know by leaving us a comment. Till our next episode.